0: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about web series with another very special guest and a friend of mine, Sam Miller. Hi, how's it going? Uh, pretty good. And Sam is uh, a writer on Single by 30 on YouTube. And he was a staff writer on Mom as well as the
1: creator of uh, LA Beer. Uh, one of many creators. One of many beer. creators. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Or how did you kind of get your start in all of this?
2: I got started in this a long time ago. I grew up in Atlanta um, and sort of in the shadow of the Turner Empire. And Mm -hmm. when I was 12, my family moved to Hong Kong. And it was just this incredible experience. And uh, it's a very technologically advanced city. And the school actually had a digital journalism program. So I started making very early machinima with the game Half-Life or like school broadcasts. Nice. Uh, and that it just sort of started with there and uh, short films in high school and in college sort of kept going and I was very lucky that in college an alum started hooking up people with internships out here in LA. So uh, I went to Vanderbilt University, Chad Gervich, who has written a great book called Small Screen Big Picture that I recommend. We're both big fans of that book. I yeah. He literally wrote a manual. I mean like the guy who literally wrote a manual about it got me a job. He helped get me out here working at at ABC Studios and uh, Dell development. He was having a class for his book, like workshopping chapters at the time. So I literally <laughs> did get sort of this insight, which was work the assistant game, try to make it to the writer's assistant level. My screenwriting professor at Vanderbilt had had a student make it to writer's assistant. So I knew sort of like five years till that, uh, 10 years to become like a staff writer. So I spent three years in studio development. We could talk about JHRTS and some mm-hmm. other sort of organizations that I got involved with then, the TV Writers Group on Yahoo. And then from there, I was able to meet with an executive who hooked me up with a writer's PA gig on Desperate Housewives. And after that, a lot of the executive producers helped me out get onto other shows. And that sort of eventually led to Mom, where mm-hmm. I was a writer's assistant and got to pitch in some jokes. And they were very generous and promoted as a staff writer. And that kind of got me my first credit. What were the
0: differences in the room from the uh, the one-hour format like Desperate Housewives to something like Mom, which is a more classic uh, multicam?
2: Even on Desperate Housewives, by the time I got there, it was actually a bunch of half-hour writers. So between those two, actually, it's one of the more similar writing room experiences. It was a lot of room writing, um, where you just have a blank screen on a blank page on a screen in the room. And the assistant would sort of type as the producers dictate what lines would sort of happen. Um, I've worked on other sort of single camera shows, uh, Super Ninjas, uh, Single by 30, where you break an outline as a room and then someone's sent off to draft and then you rewrite the draft in the room up on a screen. Um, I've heard for some drama shows you might not necessarily have the sort of like a room screen approach to it. Most of my work, even in the hour-long world, has been comedic. And so for most of that, it's been a, a room writing experience. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you decide to make a web series? I was very lucky that uh, I started producing early. And so, you know, for senior project in high school, I made a series of three martial arts films with some other students. In college, a classmate of mine made a pilot for a half-hour series, and so I helped him make a couple other episodes for the campus station. So the idea of web series just flowed very naturally out of some other, you know, work that I was doing producing as a student. It becomes a lot trickier to do web series outside of a school. If you're in school, you have the best deal ever <laughs> and it's not the equipment it's free locations right. like that to me and free like actors and just the free time in addition to the free equipment when i first came out here i met a guy who liked some of my material had an actor that he kind of wanted to be the manager for that he wanted me to write something for i did like a short 5 minute pilot for him and we got a director and we sort of shot it up actually at yeah, pepperdine and that thing is uneditable <laughs> <laughs> it is th- there were some flags that were going up when we shot it that I should have known about that I kind of warned about. And then when we got in the editing bay, I was like, Oh, okay, this is problematic so that no one can ever see it because you literally cannot cut it together. Then I tried something that I think a lot of people try, which is what can I make on my own in my apartment that went nowhere, but it was a good exercise. And so then, The next idea was sort of, what do I want out of a web series? And a lot of that was a writer's room of fellow writers and to live that experience that I was seeing as a writer's assistant but couldn't necessarily participate in. So that was really the genesis of L.A. Beer and also sort of the idea that no one had done a multi-camera web series. And so can I be can we actually do an indie multi that looks as good as what we see on TV? Could you talk a little bit about what LA Beer is about? *Ellie Beer is a workplace sitcom set in a craft brewery and follows the lives of the you know workers there who are a diverse group, who are sort of in this like entrepreneurial startup space and are generally sort of like younger millennial workers. So um, I'd seen sort of a lot of multi-cameras and I love them. And I came out here and wanted to do Friends, but no one was really making friends. You get a lot of sort of like older sitcom stars and vehicles mm-hmm. and I understand why, but I was sort of missing that experience that I was having at work where you move across the country and all of a sudden the people you're working with tend to be your like new friend group you know we tried to do 10 five-minute episodes we have sort of like some that are about the beer world and we have others that are more about what it's like to work in a modern office it took us two years to produce it and I had a really great journey there, but it was, you know, really the thrill of being able to meet every week and have sort of a writer's room environment of pitching stories or punching up scripts or, you know, having people come back in with drafts that were really fun to kind of read.
1: So how did you put together this writer's room for the web series?
2: There is a Yahoo group that started many years ago for TV writers. It's called LA TV Writers. Anyone can join it. Last I knew it was up to like 900 people. I think it's over a thousand at this point. Uh, And I just sent out an email saying anyone who wants to do a multi-camera web series it was coming off an email chain of uh, someone who I had worked with who at the time had been a staff writer. He titled an email called The Grind and How Long Do You Give Yourself to Make It in mm-hmm. Los Angeles? And it started this huge chain of responses. And at one point, I just sort of said, like, screw it. Let's do something ourselves. Maybe in some stronger language. Um <laughs> yeah. But I ended up getting uh, like 25 responses from that. You know, after three months, there were about 10 of us who were meeting every week. After six months, there were like, of course, six of us who would then meet for the rest of the two years. The guy who started that email chain has since created a kid's show. uh, And so, he's a TV show creator now. So, it's funny how things might change very quickly. (laughs) Wait, are we talking about Mike? I'm talking about Mike. Albert created that chain. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Co-creator of uh,
0: Kirby Buckets on uh, Disney.
2: Yeah. Cool. And, you know, I love Mike. He's a great guy. And, you know, I think a lot of us sort of have these sort of moments where you're like well, how long are things going to take and you know, you can try to make things happen in a number of different ways.
1: So it was almost more of a self-selecting process as the people who kept showing up and that you guys got along well with and whatever, you weren't sitting there reading everyone's samples and trying to do it in the way that they do on actual working shows.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, very early on I did ask people for samples just to sort of have um, an understanding of, okay, this is someone who can actually put a solid script together Mm -hmm. as opposed to they don't even understand formatting. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing, especially in Los Angeles, that I come to value as commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, I've had a lot of success with groups of strangers coming together focused on the same goal. We see it a lot in the improv community um, where a lot of improv teams are just coming out of classes of people who happen to have been working together for, you know, weeks, for months at a time. So uh, this was now now that I know a little bit more about the improv world, I can kind of see like, oh, we were kind of doing that in a way, but just applying it as writers for a web series. And what was the process like on the production level?
0: Because you guys raised money. You had a Kickstarter campaign. I now have an Beer glass, so thanks to it. What was that process like?
2: It was one of those incredible processes that I think if we had planned it, it wouldn't have worked as well as it did. I mean, we were really lucky that a lot of pieces came together. It started off with sort of the writing room, sort of coming up with a concept of the show. And uh, I was lucky that one of the other writers, Chris Wu, was someone that I had taken a pilot writing class with at Iowa West many years ago. So I was able to talk to Chris a lot about sort of like what kind of a show We could conceivably do on one stage it became very clear early on that if we're going to do a multi camera we can't have multiple stages so it just sort of became like what's a concept that we can actually do possibly from there we ended up with a pilot script and one of the other writer producers ali chen had a lot of experience as a casting person so she started a casting process and we got over a thousand submissions for some of the roles. The casting process led us to get a great cast that we really liked and were excited about and we wanted to get something going kind of quickly now that we had them. so. While we could have languished in a development period for a really long time, we were just kind of lucky that someone decided to go ahead with the casting process. Once we had the cast together, uh, we started talking about what a preliminary budget of what we could afford ourselves looked like. You know, of course, you blow past that. You <laughs> always kind of do in budgets. But, you know, the trick of a multi-camera sitcom, and again, why college students are so so blessed, mm-hmm. is the location. Mm-hmm. Um, and unlike shooting something in your apartment, which we've done before and doesn't look that exciting, a actual location cost money so it became looking at some of the smaller theaters in Los Angeles. But of course, you're not just putting on a play, you also have to film it. We found this place called Acme. Um, They are actually a theater that renovated themselves to have video cameras. And so Acme was great enough to sort of give us a place where we could put together a presentation. So we shot a half hour script and got some footage that we were able to sort of put together as a pilot presentation and use that for a Kickstarter. As we were doing the Kickstarter planning, we were trying to plan out future episodes. During the Kickstarter, we kind of used that as like a feedback response process so we could see how to sort of like tweak the show and make it better out of that jessica kivnik who was one of our writer producers really pushed us to like specify the voice and sort of craft beer came out of that before it had sort of been this idea on the rocks which was like a small batch liquor distributor so we really tried to hone it and like rebrand it and relaunch it keeping the same cast and characters we're just sort of putting it in this new world um, and trying to tag in on marketing trends there. This was a two-year process, so I'm sorry that it's taking <laughs> a while to <laughs> no, get no. all the way through. But then also Jessica uh, has some production experience and so it was great helping us put together a budget and Andrew Arillion helped us get uh, a crew through sort of the the Vets network out here and then Greg Macklin just kind of like filled in all of the holes like with contracts and everything else that just sort of like other people weren't necessarily experts in. So you can see how having like a full team really made it, possible. We had weekly meetings at Denny's. I cannot hear (laughs) Katy Perry's roar without like PTSD flashbacks (laughs) to the Denny's song system. But I brought in one of the guys that I had worked with on mom who was an associate producer there and was also a director and he really helped us nail the look and friend of a production designer that we had had for the original production had like a stage space that we could rent. So it all kind of came together as piece by piece had to lock into place.
0: So at that point, were you doing all that while being a writer's assistant on mom or were you a staff writer already?
2: We came up with the idea while I was a uh, script coordinator on a TV land show, uh, the X's. And so then I transitioned from the X's to mom and we did sort of the Kickstarter my first fall with mom while I was a writer's assistant. And then the next year uh, we did the production, but I was still a writer's assistant, but I had had hiatus. And so I'd had kind of like two months to sort of be able to get out there and sort of um, talk to different people and do a lot of like the groundwork, mm-hmm. um, looking at locations and sets and all that kind of stuff.
0: What was it like to, for all intents and purposes, run a writer's room for a web series? How did that work?
2: It was really cool. It was, it was a, a wonderful experience and I'm very thankful that people listened to me. Um, <laughs> you know, I tried to let people take ownership of their work. You know, I was very, very proud that a lot of people were able to have ideas and then develop them further and just... Like The idea was, together, we will make things better. At times, I had to be a dictator. Very <laughs> early on in the process, I was like, "Sending send in your ideas for what kind of a show we could do, and we'll pick any of them. And then very early on, I was like, we, okay, we can't pick any of them. <laughs> I have to do something that I'm confident that we can produce. You know, sitting around a table, sort of talking through ideas. You know, I don't like being the no-that-won't-work person necessarily. And we would have a lot of debates of like, Why does it just have to be on one stage? Like, Couldn't we just go out and shoot extra material if we wanted to? Mm -hmm. I could be very restrictive about things from a producer's angle, but I hope from a writer's angle... We all liked the material that we were coming up with together. We all thought things were getting better and not necessarily
1: worse, <laughs> uh, which is always a risk. Had any of these writers previously been staffed on shows or at least worked in rooms as assistants and known how a writer's room runs? Or were you all kind of learning it as you went? Chris Wu
2: was actually working on the TV Land show that I was working on at the time as a show assistant. Um, and he went on to become a script coordinator and writer's assistant for some Amazon dramas. Jessica Kivnick had been a script coordinator for the Paranormal Activity uh, franchise mm-hmm. and has, since went on to become a Devious Maids script coordinator. Mm-hmm. So a couple of people had had some experience sort of in a room setting. Um, for others, it was kind of their first time in that specific environment, although they had either been in writing classes or had been in writer rooms or fellowships or workshops.
0: So you mentioned that you had to rebrand the show and the content almost going from a show called On the Rocks to something called Alibir, right? Yeah. How did you guys decide to switch over to almost a different setting? And then how did that come about?
2: After the Kickstarter did not light the world on fire, <laughs> um, <laughs> as most Kickstarters don't, we sort of talked about what was our approach. I credit... Just Jessica Kivnik with a lot of this, you know, she was very much pushing, but like what specifically could her voice be? And we were a very, you know, diverse group of people. And I think we all kind of had our own angles on it. And I think that kind of comes out in a lot of the episodes, hopefully. But for me, I just, I really like craft beer. So that became something easy to latch onto. And then it sort of became a question of what title could we have? What like Twitter trends could we walk into? What's the setting? You know, it's still a workplace. But it went from like a corporate environment to a stand-up environment.
0: So speaking of uh, trends and uh, hashtags, how did you guys market the show? Like how did that work once you had a product out there? How do you get a show noticed online?
2: We had a hard time coming up with a title. Uh, We had hundreds of puns on uh, (laughs) beer-related things. And then we noticed that the Los Angeles uh, breweries used a hashtag LA beer. So it became very easy for us to say, we like that as a title. We can automatically see how we could, you know, fit into a conversation, not hijacking the conversation, but trying to like be part of it. And, you know, social media will only get you so far. One of my regrets looking back on it is that maybe we didn't spend more time finding influencer level talent, because I think that's very important from a marketing standpoint. The other thing was we were lucky that the producer director, Christopher James Burke, who had been on Mom, was also part of the PGA. And so we went to a Producers Guild event on social media marketing. And the moderator there happened to be one of the editors at Variety. And so we mentioned our show to him and, you know, first multicam, if you're the first of something, you're going to get some kind of press. So we were very thankful that we were the first and we had like a professional enough look to it that you could put a photo of it up there. And that really got us the most attention. We did put some money into a publicist and some sort of, you know, advisors from a social media perspective. And they were very helpful and, you know, got us more than we could have on our own. But I think web series right now is in a very weird place. I don't know who watches web series you know what i mean like i know people who watch netflix and amazon and hulu and those shows but i don't know people who just go online to watch independent web series so there is a culture for independent web series, and they're very supportive, and they get together, and they, there's a lot of knowledge there. But very few shows make it into that next level of the high maintenance, hmm. the teachers. I think for a lot of those, you see they have some traditional Hollywood people somehow playing a role in it at some point. So it's just – it's it's a bunch of combinations of things, and it's – it's a. Uh, it's not a business of success, it's a business mm-hmm. of failure. Where do you draw the line
0: between a web series and just a TV show, especially you know, in the world of, as you said, Netflix and OTT networks and so on? What do you qualify as a web series versus, is Orange is, is then your black a web series? Is,
2: if you trust the New York Times, uh, News Alert, yes. Uh, all those <laughs> things technically are web series. You know, I think the independent television movement is interesting, and what that sort of shows us is that, like, 22 minutes, you could probably get away with 15 and call it TV if you really want to. We branded L.A. Beer an original series because web series is such a problematic moniker. I think if you're talking about five-minute pieces of content. You can't call it TV series. I just don't think that's what people are expecting with it, but you can call it original digital series.
1: Would you have any advice for people who want to kind of like follow in those footsteps and create their own web series And these days if things change?
2: My number one piece of advice is collaborate. There are some people who can do everything on their own for those super talented millionaires. Great. Uh, for everyone else, you need people's help. And I would also, you know, trying to find that big idea that's personal to you and also um, something that people haven't seen before. It was one of the critiques of alley beer was you did a show that i could have seen on tv because i i don't love pushing edgy content i like doing fun wholesome stuff sort of and to of that was a fair point you know we did a show that was kind of the point was that we we're mm-hmm. trying to do something that right. was as good as tv but from a marketing perspective that doesn't no no one's talking about that um, you need to have that next level going.
1: Were you hoping that maybe it would get noticed and picked up to TV in the way that high maintenance has or Broad City? or?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we certainly tried to reach out to people to see if we could get those sorts of like hallmarks for it. But, you know, we weren't part of the cultural conversation in that same way. It's easy to see why, you know, I, I understand why, uh, but it's it's a lot easier to sort of analyze it than it is to generate. <laughs>
0: What do you think is the, the relationship between TV and web series? Because uh, you brought up high maintenance and, and uh, even Broad City and so on. Like, What do you feel is that relationship? Is there uh, a landscape for producing web series now with the sole goal of getting acquired as an IP? Or is that the, not the norm, but the exception to the rule?
2: I think we have to take a look at what's going on as a whole, in that in 2007 when Hulu was first starting, you could have an indie web series that might get distribution on Hulu. Now you have a J.J. Abrams, James Franco series on there. You have CW Seed, you have uh, all these other sort of like smaller network-affiliated sites who are actually seeding money into programming. So I do think you see TV networks seeing web series as a venue for incubation. And there are certainly places like the full screens of the world where their original series are part of what makes their platform so great and why it makes them popular. But when you're talking about independent web series, I I think they're the new short film. You know, it's like many years ago, you used to have, if you want to be a director, like the short film film festival circuit and you still have it. But I think with like web series and web distribution is not what it was in the 90s. So I kind of have to look at indie web series that way. I haven't sold L.A. beer, but I've been able to use it as like, hey, I can produce something to some of these digital places. And so in that way, I think people see it as talent. I think if you are able to follow the YouTube rule, which is like three videos a week for three years, you can get like 50,000 subscribers. If you can turn that 50,000 into 500,000, like maybe you can be a talent yourself, but you have to have the temperament, the commitment, and know the style of content that you can be doing in that volume by yourself. Three videos a week for three years? That's insane. YouTube, I mean, they analyzed what their YouTubers were doing. And granted, you know, a lot of them start as vloggers or, you know, very simple kind of like video operations. Some of them might have like one quality piece of content a month and then a lot of like supplementary stuff and like maybe they're recutting things and that counts as a video, but what I didn't appreciate about YouTube until I really did a deep dive was it's a social media network. Mm-hmm. It, you know, we think about it as a video site, but it, it's actually a community and it's about collaboration and it's about cross promoting and comment sections. And uh, it's a whole world unto itself. So I think now you're starting to see a lot of the web talent that knows that world is getting opportunities at the next level because they have you know, the reach among their fans. Um, And that's like why Broad city that does hundreds of episodes. They did like a hundred of those. So Mm -hmm. if you're doing a hundred of your indie web series and you're part of a community, like an improv theater in New York, like, yeah, maybe you can make something happen. But for a lot of us, it's just a training ground or, a piece of the portfolio
1: do you feel that this kind of like increasing professionalization of web content and this push of kind of networks to sponsor things is it making it harder for indie people to kind of get in and get their voices heard because there's so much high quality stuff coming out or uh, is it making it easier because there are opportunities for them to be paid to do it if it's good enough or is it more complicated than that
2: i think it's you know, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a network TV show? Are we talking about a cable show? Are we talking about a show on Vimeo? Are we talking about you know, making enough money producing your own stuff, whether that's brand sponsorships or anything. It's a very big, wide world out there right now. And my answer might be different if you're living in Los Angeles versus if you're living, you Mm -hmm. know, somewhere else in the country.
1: It's more like what your goal is or something and what you're trying to get out of it.
2: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's interesting, you know, a lot of the YouTubers, television isn't a goal of theirs. For them, it might be a sellout. And so these are people who have their own version of web series in whatever way, and that's not the end goal for them. You know, as far as like producing a web series in Los Angeles and putting it out there I mean you know some stuff catches fire you might do better with a one-off short film than maybe with a series but you know everyone's tried everything at this point and anything can work it's just how much of it have you tried and are you there yet is that
0: YouTube content that you're mentioning mostly kind of unscripted vlog type or is it also you know the more linear narrative
2: uh, you know, I think for like Wong Fu, the guys behind single by 30, like they do unscripted, but they also do a lot of short film sketches um, They've done independent feature films, you know I think there are maybe some of the few more behind-the-scene talents when it comes to YouTube So there certainly is a lot of that unscripted stuff But a lot of the people who've been on YouTube for 10 years now, you know, I mean that YouTube came out the year before I graduated college so if I was making stuff for the campus station you know, people have been making stuff for, for years right. and years now. But if you look at some of these deals, a lot of these guys already have exclusive deals with the Machinimas of the World or um, Maker, full screen, like all that kind of stuff. All of that is to say they got on the bandwagon early and could kind of grow with the platform. So now they're already huge. So if you're trying to come into a platform like a YouTube, you know, if you can get into Vimeo with like a staff bit kind of a thing. But like we're sort of saying, it's, it's a really big environment right now. So it's a little bit harder mm-hmm. maybe than it was for some of those who've now been doing it for so long.
0: So stepping uh, sideways for a bit, you've been a staff writer on Mom. How different was it to work in that kind of more traditional television environment versus the web series environment?
2: You know, single by 30 was run very much like a TV writer's room. Um, you know, that was a single camera. And so writers were sent off to draft and mom was a multi-camera and everything was group written. And then also single by 30, we blocked and shot everything, which sort of means, um, you know, all eight episodes. If you have all scenes in Peter's apartment, like those are going to be the first thing shot across any episode. It's very common in cable. I know Amazon stuff does it. On Mom, we'd have the production of an episode a week, so we at least had the feedback there of you know, oh, this is something that's working for this cast member. On uh, Single by Thirty, we were writing it all in advance, so it was a little bit more um, anticipatory and sort of like, okay, we'll we'll arc out the whole thing and then try to figure it out from there. Uh, Mom was also a week to week written show, whereas Single by Thirty, we really talked about what the arc of the season was. And maybe that's something we should have done on L.A. Beer. Uh, people were suggesting that on L.A. Beer, but I, I pushed for them to be more standalone. Um, and that might have been a mistake. We're, it seems like we're moving more towards serialized comedy right now. Mm-hmm.
1: How big was the element of sort of audience engagement um, both on a web series and maybe even on Mom? Were you getting kind of people's feedback over Twitter and things like that? Was that being taken into account in the writing for both of those different shows?
2: On Mom, you know, as a multi-camera comedy the audience feedback is the audience. Uh, You have 200 people who are sitting there and either they're laughing at a joke or they're not. I operated the Mom Writer's Room account for Twitter and it was very cool to kind of see what that conversation was online. Single by 30 everything was done too late. So by the time stuff was coming out, it's more like, oh, this is cool how they feel about it as opposed to like really informing storylines. I think desperate housewives just from like critical feedback had sort of calibrated itself, but uh, I can't think of a specific show where while it was going on, the social media conversation really played a role in what was happening.
1: Not even for your web series where it's more immediate, kind of right there.
2: Oh, man. I wish people were talking about our web series <laughs> on social media. We would get, you know, a couple of nice comments. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of friends and family and clearly people just showing their support. Mm-hmm. There was Snobby Robot still does like a web series Wednesday watch party. And so we had one of those. But again, as the web series community, it's a lot of sort of like inside baseball about like, wait, how did you make this and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So it was, a, it was a lot of that.
0: How did you make the transition from being a writer on Mom to being on, on Single by 30? How did you learn about the, the opening of that show and transition to a YouTube show?
2: It was taking a pilot writing class, as I am wont to do. Uh, and you know, what I recommend for people is come to LA and take classes with writers who have been recently working. You just you learn a lot from those sort of people and so i was taking a pilot writing class from a guy who uh was recently a high level producer on an mtv show and then he became the showrunner on single by 30 and uh you know i just i received a notification from him which was really cool
0: how is the writers' room? So you said it's it's somewhat
2: similar to the the classic TV model. Todd Waldman's a showrunner, and even as a teacher, he was sort of like if you're doing a premium show, still put the act breaks in there because they're important for the storytelling itself. You just it's an editing choice. Um, so we did break them with act breaks. You know, very early on, we were talking about what sort of like the broad strokes of the season arcs would be. And then it became like, okay, how do we sort of like find that down? Took a very broad view of what the season would be like first, then went in sort of like episode by episode, then went back through them again. You know, we had a nice outline process with the the studio and the network, which was cool. And so it was just a very standard kind of room approach, I think, in a lot of ways. How was that interaction with YouTube? They were very supportive. You know, they they were very good to us. I can't speak to how it compares to other places. I think sometimes the hands off approach is a slightly exaggerated. I think executives like to say they're hands off. I think <laughs> writers sometimes disagree with that. But you know, YouTube had opinions just like every place does. Um and I think we were able to work them in and it wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't the worst experience I've heard of people having with executives.
0: You brought up on the on your web series you wanted to be part of that conversation on the marketing level. Do you take that into account when you do something for YouTube?
2: One of the things that was nice about the YouTube series is we were really following the voice of someone else. It was Wang Fu's short film that the series was being adapted from. So Um, you know, as far as content goes, we, we knew that we were kind of going for, you know, PG 13 ish. The, the sexiness was more romantic in a lot of ways. It wasn't trying to be girls. And I actually really appreciated that because I think there's like a sweetness to it. Uh, that's really nice. (laughs)
1: So I hear you're involved with uh, JHRTS, the Junior Hollywood Radio Television Society. How did you kind of get involved with that? And how has that helped you in your career?
2: I was involved with JHRTS while I was at ABC. You know, it's an organization for assistants, primarily studio and agency assistants, although it's open to all assistants. But you generally have some sort of institutional legacy for the board members in the organization. And so I had gone to a couple of events. They had a speed networking night that was just so joyfully shameless. It was one of my (laughs) favorite things. But I actually ended up meeting a guy there. We had a mutual friend back home. Um, he was starting to do like a stand-up comedy night, so like every other Tuesday, I'd walk around the corner from my apartment and I could go to this guy's thing. So, uh, you never know who you're going to meet at stuff in Los Angeles. I went to a lot of great panels where I learned a lot of stuff and um, saw some really cool people. And uh, yeah, I was I was asked by one of the ABC people if I wanted to join the board. I was very thankful that they would nominate me, and then spend a year on the board uh, as a member, and then I spent a year as co-president, which was a really cool experience as well. And you know, it's funny we actually just had like a reunion of some of our people uh, this past summer. And it was nice to see people. You know, a lot of them are now executives or agents or managers. So it's been it's been good from you know from just sort of a knowing people hearing how their experiences are going kind of a thing, just meeting nice people that you can be friendly with because in this town, that's not the easiest thing in the world. (laughs) So I had a really good experience with JHRCS.
0: What were your responsibilities as a board member and a co-president?
2: As a board member, you uh, meet once a month to sort of talk about what upcoming events are. You are uh, responsible for going to the events as well to sort of make it your participation known. There's a big annual holiday party which uh, raises a lot of money for charity. And so a lot of the year is sort of based around planning for that. And those are those are the main responsibilities. Every month they do a panel, they do a mixer, they do a charity event. Uh, and a lot of times they'll also do a round table. So... Uh, that, that takes a lot of the energy as you try to <laughs> coordinate schedules and lock in people. That's sort of how we met, right? The holiday party?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> incidentally, yeah, yeah, yeah. you were trying to sell me a ticket to the holiday party slash the membership.
2: Well, TV Calling had like a chat feature at the time, gray box or something. Yep. Like. Uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> I remember going on there and uh, they used to bundle a holiday party ticket with a f- uh, annual membership. And I'm not sure if they still do that. but It was actually a pretty decent deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they still do, and at the time, I was under 21 years old, so I
0: could not attend the, the party, but you still uh, conned me into getting the it membership. It was <laughs> so good deal for the membership, <laughs> it was, it was. And now you're obviously a WGA member, and you've been uh, pretty involved with the guild because you hosted a panel, and you've been uh, on a few panels yourself. How did that come about? Why do you feel it is important to be involved with the guild in that way?
2: You know, I'm involved with the guild for a lot of the same reasons that uh, I got involved with JHRTS. Honestly, I'm a nerd. I could talk shop. All day long, as long as my voice holds up. Uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoy hearing from people that I respect and getting some, like, uh, specific insight. And so the WGA has an education committee that I got involved with. I've actually missed a couple of meetings now, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I need to be better about that. But, you know, the Guild is a very large organization and has a lot of members and relies on member participation in order for it to be something. And, you know, having been in Los Angeles for a number of years, I was a big fan of the writer's guild foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been to the WGA library a couple of times. Like Mm -hmm. I just thought it's so cool that they actually let me into this thing (laughs) um, that I would want to be involved with it. And so I was very thankful that they did have a web series panel and I spoke on that and it was very interesting to hear people's experiences. If you go to the WGA YouTube page, I believe you can find that panel. And then I put on a panel sort of about how to find your, like, second TV writing job um, and just sort of talking about what what the landscape is for younger writers right now. Because I think that's a very important conversation, and mm-hmm. only people who are in that situation <laughs> want to have that conversation. How do you feel people could get more involved if they're in the Guild? It's just showing up to committee meetings. Um, you know, there are a number of events. They had a, an annual membership meeting. Um, that isn't very well attended because, fortunately, the guild's doing very well. You know, financially, they're succeeding. You know, I, I know uh, it's a negotiations year and they're always much maligned, but I think they do, overall, a very good job for a lot of the members, so there's not a lot of angst among the, the group. And I think that makes it easy to sort of, like, hang back. There are a number of committees. There's, you know, the Education Committee and the Activities Committee, in addition to, you know, all the different sort of groups that represent different types of writers. So even if you're not one of those writers, you're welcome to go to their events. And I I think they put on a lot of good events during the year. Um, So it's just sort of a matter of looking at the calendar. I think a lot of people might not see that email when it comes in their emails. (laughs) Uh, Are there any
0: on-tap resources from the guild that you feel people should look into?
2: If you have not done a deep dive in the WGA library (laughs) for research, I I highly recommend it. It was cool. I uh, looked up some James L. Brooks stuff at one point in time, and he had like an interview that was just like, uh I think his was just an audio But it was dated the same day that he ended up signing the pilot script of Mary Tyler Moore. And you can get that script there. There's a Norman Lear interview that's just like on hard copy that you can read. There's the first video from when Jeff Melvoin was sort of like just starting the WGA showrunner program. And you can kind of watch like his introduction to like the showrunners program. Mm -hmm. The creators of According to Jim donated a box of their materials. And so you can actually see the development of According to Jim from like pitch documents through different stages of the outline and um, the production drafts. Uh, so there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff in there uh, that you can go look for.
1: So speaking of that, what is your next step in your career? Where do you think you're, you want to head now? What's in the future for you? I'm trying to understand
2: what my place in the business could be. You know, I think there are a lot of things going on in the media landscape that are very interesting, you know, as we have this sort of convergence of web series and TV series, I think there are going to be a lot of opportunities in the middle there. I have one project that hopefully will go forward to a next step, but I don't think it's quite the world that it used to be in the 90s or the early aughts where like one show could kind of carry you through the year. You know, it's now talking more about how do you build your year? How do you get multiple projects going on at the same time, especially if you're looking at sort of the digital side of things. So fortunately, I have credit. I have reps. um, I'm able to sort of get out there, um, but it's always about what What's the next thing that you can write? What's the next way that you can kind of position yourself?
0: How do you see that evolution of content? What are your thoughts on the way people watch TV now with like nonlinear format and, and so on?
2: At the end of the day, I think everyone wants to just put something on the screen in their living room. Like, I, I really don't think, you know, even people who are watching on their laptops right now, no one's like, this is the greatest viewing experience I've ever had. <laughs> like, I think we're all kind of wanting to throw it up on a screen. So it's just sort of a question of how do we all watch it on the screen? I mean, watching Netflix became the same as using Kleenex or Googling something. I mean, it's just become so dominant. You know, there is some groundbreaking by Amazon. I think Hulu's trying to make some noise. Criterion just pulled their collection off of Hulu and with Turner Classic is trying to do something on the side. So I think we'll see a lot of these sort of like niche what are called OTT, over-the-top delivery systems that are really just coming straight to your Roku or PS4 or what have you.
0: What are your thoughts on CISO? Have you checked out that?
2: Uh, yeah, I did the free month of CISO just to watch one piece of content that I had. I was very impressed with the library. I thought that was really great. I, I think it's good that they're doing a lot of sort of original series, but it's like I already have Hulu, Amazon, and Netflix <laughs> And half the time, there's like too much stuff to watch, but I'm still not in the mood for it. So I don't know. I think CISO is one of those very interesting places that, will we talk about them in five years? Mm -hmm. What will that conversation be? Last
0: year, I attended a panel with the head of CISO who was referring to this OTT landscape as a similar perspective as as Cable, where you will have, he thought, you you would have these OTT that are very niche and for very specific interests. So you have CISO that's kind of the IFC of OTT and you have maybe a sci-fi OTT coming up. That's just about science fiction and so on. And and the Netflix of the world and the Hulu of the world are just uh, broadcast networks. It's going to be interesting to see where where that uh, takes us.
2: But my only point would be, you know, In the cable world, I don't think IFC likes being IFC. So it's like you can call CISO (laughs) the IFC of digital, but like, who's watching that? People apparently have like 10 channels that they go to, you know, take out a news site, take out like a sports channel, you know, what, what do you have left? It's There's only so much bandwidth in the consumer right now. And I think, again, you know, we're part of a town that is very much about media. I don't know how many people know about even Amazon video throughout most of the country. I mean, they had to do sort of like a mailer system to get people. And because I keep getting it because my (laughs) girlfriend and I both have it because we're stupid. Uh, But they're keep like, you have video, use your video. I'm like, I'm, I'm just ordering stuff. I don't need the (laughs) video right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, personally, I'm not sure trying to replicate the the cable landscape on a digital level and just giving people the same thing they always had where you're compartmentalizing everything like and here's this little channel for this little thing again like i don't know if that's necessarily the way forward it seems like some places are trying to bring everything together like i know um hulu has just struck a deal with like abc and um uh, somewhere or Sony or something like that, I think, and they're going to try and get like all the ESPN and everything on there mm-hmm. and put it all in one place. And to me, that seems more like a, a better way to move forward than to just keep pulling things out of larger things into smaller bits. I don't know.
0: I completely agree, but I feel like there's definitely a movement uh, among the studios to just control their own IP. So you will have ABC wanting to do their own thing. CBS is already doing their own thing with CBSL Access. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an incentive on their part to keep that compartment aspect and just have if you just want to watch cbs content then you will have to go on cbs all access you yeah. can't get it on netflix it's
1: definitely an incentive for them i just don't know whether it's the best thing for the audience and oh it's, it's awful for us it's yeah. awful but so uh, let's we'll see how that goes for them right Okay. Now. <laughs> Is there wait are you saying
0: there's too much content on tv <laughs> what, what are you talking
2: about <laughs> Single by 30 had its first season uh, just wrap up this fall and we're waiting to hear about a pickup. So Mm -hmm. check it out on YouTube Red and they, they have some other cool stuff on there, but single by 30 is the best thing. (laughs) (laughs) How many shows do they have on uh, YouTube Red? I think that I just saw something and they had 20 originals for this past year, wow. but that also includes some features and some of that stuff was acquired, not necessarily that they mm-hmm. developed. Mm-hmm. It's $10 a month, but I think it's actually especially a good deal if you don't have like Spotify because they have a huge music library and you don't get ads anymore on your YouTube video. Okay. You get a free Google Play Music
1: membership yeah, I think with that's it. Like that's
2: like really yeah. Part of it.
1: And it lets you minimize your YouTube video on your phone and, and still plays the music. Oh, I are think. you serious? Yeah, yeah. Wow. they saved that feature for the membership
2: <laughs> I actually get very frustrated because I'll watch a lot of panels on YouTube yeah. and so I want to like minimize it so I can walk with it surely
1: they should give you a free membership if you ride on one of those shows <laughs>
2: well theoretically I should sign up for membership <laughs> yeah but I will say like you know the WGA has a ton of panels on YouTube uh, PGA has a ton of panels on YouTube MIPCOM I don't know if people are familiar with MIPCOM VidCon and like a bunch of other sort of those streaming things it's amazing what you can kind of find if you do the deep dive on some of the hour along stuff. So I always recommend just as many Nerdist Writers podcasts, just all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and like your podcast.
1: Of course, the unspoken. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you, everyone, for uh, taking the time to listen. And thanks so much to Sam for coming in and talking to us. If you would like to leave us a review, we would also like that. So please go to paperteam.co slash iTunes. That's C-O. And any reviews you give will help us get more listeners. And uh, we can keep doing cool stuff for you. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I am at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Sam?
2: I am at the Sam Miller. I was one of the guys. The Sam playing. Miller. The one and only. <laughs> I'd say the, not the, the Sam. The.
0: If you have any thoughts, opinions, questions, you can send it to ask at
1: paperteam.co. That is CO now.com. And we will see you next week. Or is this one where yep. we see people next no, no, week? No, All right. You. We will see you next week. <laughs> we will see you next week. I won't. <laughs> but not Sam. <laughs> we'll be watching you from the bushes. All right, <laughs>